You're listening to the You Mentor Talk Show, where each week we invite a panel of experts to hear about their incredible journeys and career paths. On today's show, we're speaking with Syed Hassan Ali Rizvi. When you know there's more to life than what's in front of your eyes, you won't rest until you escape the illusion, find the truth, and help wake everyone up from their dream. I live to help others find the real truth that God has so graciously led me to. This week's sponsor is Cozy Cafe. I'm Fatima Al-Sayed, your Umanja Talk Show host. Make sure to tune into this show every Saturday at 3 p.m. this Ramadan. Assalamu alaikum, Sayed Hassan. How are you? Alaikum salam, rahmatullah. Alhamdulillah, good. How are you? I'm doing well, alhamdulillah. Uh, I want to come to first start off with your uh, little description that you provided us with. When you know there's more to life than what's in front of your eyes. What was in front of your eyes that made you realize you didn't have the real truth? Hmm. So I think the the kind of quote or that one-liner was inspired by uh, The Matrix, right? Movies like that. Yeah. So I've been a big, you know, big movie person since I was a kid. I still am. And I think a lot of us, or even in my life, right, there was a lot of things that you know, we just kind of, we kind of just live life based on things that we just see around us, the way that we're raised, and we don't really question too much. We don't really ask too many questions, right? And we just mm-hmm. kind of just live like almost like walking zombies and that kind of thing. And, you know, that's how I was when I was a kid, you know, typical uh, raised in a born Shia household with mm-hmm. parents who were, you know, mildly religious, but mostly cultural. And I just didn't understand anything, this and that. And then once I started to hear and think about some of these like deeper life questions about God and religion and some political questions, things like that, uh, then I started to see, okay, maybe there's something more than uh, more to what I've I've been experiencing. And then just, uh, I mean, over time, I couldn't ignore it anymore that, okay, things were becoming much, much clearer. All these questions that I had were being answered and I just had to kind of change my life based on that. Were you um, seeking confirmation or were you at a crossroads where you um, just wanted to learn more? So I don't think I was seeking confirmation because I guess my personality is that I'm, I always pretty much play devil's advocate so much so that I usually I pretty much piss off the person that I'm talking to, right? And I just get very, very argumentative and I, I just want to prove them wrong. And I've always been a arguer and debater since I was a kid so even if I would hang out with people who were let's say religious right and you know when I was a kid again religious stuff didn't interest me at all so if I would go and people would be talking about it I would just find a weak point in their argument and I would just you know kind of shut them down and uh, you know, people would kind of be upset like you know what are you doing why are you acting like this and I think deep down it was I was trying to get to the truth and I just didn't know the actual proper way to go about it and then as I was getting older and I, I want to say more mature. I don't know if that's necessarily the case, but in college when I was trying to research a bit more about these things, I, I really thought that, you know, atheism uh, and not being following a religion kind of made sense because, you know, the push from society, from friends, especially my non-Muslim friends, even some of my Muslim friends, was that, you know, religion's a joke. It doesn't really matter in life. So I wanted to say, okay, you know what, is this, is this religion really, you know, does it have anything to say or not? And I, I tried to look at all the works of the atheists, all the books and articles and debates on YouTube. And then when I started to see if I could contradict it and prove atheism right, then I started to see, okay, it seems like Islam actually has some, some worth and value to it. And then I started going deeper and deeper. So I think it was more of 
seeking the truth for what it really is and not trying to just prove that Shiism or Islam in general is correct. Interesting. Um, so when you started to build on your research and try to find answers, where did you go? I mean, the same place that most people go when they don't know how to research properly. So I would go on like different forums like Shia chat, which I regret now, but, um, yeah. and any other like Google search that somebody would do, or I would ask people around me, uh, I would watch a lot of videos on YouTube, like these short clips. And, you know, back when I was researching it, there wasn't as much information on YouTube and on social media as there is right now. So it wasn't that much, but there you know, were a few debates of, let's say, Muslim speakers against atheists. And I would watch them and I was kind of surprised that, uh, you know, Muslim speakers actually had something valuable to say. And all the other research I did, I think it gave me that initial push, but obviously now in hindsight, if I had a proper mentor or a guide that would have showed me how to research or could have spoken to me in the way I needed to be spoken to, then I know that I would have realized that those research methods weren't really the best way to go about it. But Alhamdulillah, it was good enough to start a sport. Mm -hmm. Does being a university student aid in doing that research and knowing how to do it properly? It, I think it depends on the, the university student and the university. No, not, mm -hmm. not everybody, even if they go to college, it's not necessary that they've learned and they do learn and are taught how to actually research properly. And you know, in your own specific field of whether you're an engineer or in pharma, uh, pharmacy or uh, in medicine, mm -hmm. law, whatever, they, they each have their own kind of way that you do you know, research in that subject. Mm -hmm. So Islamic research or this kind of research, I mean, for specific Islamic topics, it's a way that I don't feel that people really understand how it happens. And that's why they end up kind of just jumping on social media and grabbing random information here and there or asking random scholars at Q&As and things like that. So mm -hmm. generally speaking, I don't think most people in any regard know how to research things properly. And I think that is a necessary skill, regardless of whether you believe in religion or not. It's just a necessary skill. Of how do you actually answer these questions, especially these deeper philosophical questions. It's not as easy and it, it shouldn't be something that we can just solve with like one like Google search, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so that kind of stuff for a university student, I don't know, it, it just doesn't seem like it's, it necessarily is the case. Although again, I haven't been to every university, so maybe some schools do provide their students with proper research method in everything, but I highly mm -hmm. doubt it. Okay. Um... Did you have any, so at the time you were still in university or college, um, yeah. what were you studying? So I, when I initially went to college, uh, I was doing political, oh, sorry, computer science. That was my first major okay. going in. And that was only because I didn't really have super interest. I mean, I like playing games, like computer games and stuff. And I just figured, mm -hmm. all right, I think I'll go into this. I'll do some programming, maybe video game design. I, I had no idea. And I was kind of just pushed by the community, my parents who were just about, you know, just find something where you can get a job, right? Just the typical kind of materialistic lifestyle. I was like, okay, fine. That makes sense. I like computers, I guess, and I can get a job. I know there's a market for it, so I'll do that. And then mm -hmm. little by little, as I started to research and find more of a love in debating and researching and asking these deeper questions, then I realized, and I think it was after my first internship, uh, my sophomore year, and, you know, I was sitting in this internship going every morning, making a decent amount of money, too. It was a decent internship, but I just didn't feel like any love there. I didn't feel any passion. I didn't feel like I was mm -hmm. doing anything. I, was, I, I felt like a waste. And I said, you know, if, if I sit in this office, I'm sure that I can make a decent income. But I feel like, you know, if I continue with this, then I'll go crazy. I'll turn into one of those, you know, <laughs> of people who, you know, just become corporate zombies. I don't mm -hmm. want to just live 
and work so that some company's stock point goes up because of my work. I said, I don't want to do that. Yeah. And then I realized I took a semester off and I realized that, you know, I actually loved politics a lot more. I loved, you know, watching back then Daily Show, Colbert Report, stuff like that, uh, getting into all these discussions and debates, more so politics than religion. But then after I started diving into the political discussions, obviously you can't really separate religion from politics. So naturally, I started researching religion more. And then from there, I think it just, um, that's when I finally switched my major to poli-sci. And I focused specifically on Islam, Islamic politics, politics in the Middle East, and things like that. Uh, When you made that switch, were your parents worried? Obviously, I think any... (laughs) <laughs> Most grandparents, at least, are like, you know, what the heck are you going to do with the poli-sci degree? Um, so, I mean, generally speaking, people in the humanities, you know, the humanities, is, is it's obvious, right? If you're not into the general sciences. Yeah, it's risky. Yeah, it's risky. Most of the time, you don't get a job. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they were a little caught off guard. And, you know, again, my father wanted to just make sure I was stable and secure. And that, that was, I understand mm-hmm. his concern now. And I started to say, look, there's different ways I can go about it, right? I could go for a master's or a PhD later on. Um, I could work for a political think tank, or a lobbying group. I'm like, there's different ways. You know, I, I try to do my research, I placate them. Uh, I could go into academia. There's a lot of different options. So he's like, okay, as long as you put in the effort and stuff, then that's fine. So he was pretty much okay with the switch. Although I don't know if he was completely happy, but uh, he was okay, I guess. He tolerated it. <laughs> How did they feel when you decided to drop everything and move to study housing? Yeah, so that was slightly different. It was related, especially, so my mother, on the other hand, was basically just kind of okay with everything. She was like, you know, as long as you're happy, uh, as long as you like what you're doing, and as long as you, you know, are just generally thinking about your life and your future, that you can support a family, then just go ahead and do it. My father had the same, but he was much more of a, he was very precise and very financially kind of prudent, and he wanted to make make sure all the T's, you know, were crossed and I's were dotted, right? And I had to respect that from him. So when he was like, you know, when I, I talked about Islamic studies, this was after graduation and after realizing I wanted to pursue that. Again, the same questions came up, but he also brought up kind of the, I'd say it's kind of our societal experiential kind of issues, meaning like, look, look at all these Molanas and sheikhs and all this, like they're not really living comfortable lives. He's like, they're not really supporting their families. And even some people that we know from uh, certain areas in, the, in North America, a lot of scholars who have studied overseas and come back because they can't really find work or they're not really getting supported by communities. Kind of things, which is fine. It's, it's okay to learn a living, earn a living like that. But, you know, my father didn't really want that for me. You know, he's like, I want you to be able to properly support a family. I don't want you to yeah. struggle like that. And then I, when I gave him my full plan, and it was similar to the poli-sci thing, I said, look, with, an Islamic, with Islamic studies, I can always come back. I can study, I can teach at a university. You know, either um, at a smaller college or a bigger college, Islamic studies is one of the kind of up and coming topics. They're always looking for people, especially Muslims, to teach these topics, especially mm-hmm. if they have seminary experience. So I'll be, I'll be able to teach language, you know, whether Farsi or English. I can do translation work. I can do research. I can do writing. I said, there's a lot of options available. He said, okay, as long as you've thought it through, he's like, I trust you, so you can go ahead and do it. And I think both my mother and father were also, deep down, were also kind of happy that somebody from the family, was actually going forward on this because nobody really wants them to do that because of the kind of taboo that goes along with studying the Hausa. But at the same yeah. time, they know that there is a quote-unquote blessing for having an alim in the in the family. Although I'm not an alim, I'm just a student, obviously. But I think deep down, they did have that, that, that let's say, hope and desire. Mm-hmm. 
is it true when you um some <clears throat> people will sorry i think we hear a buzz in the background um which is interrupting a bit of the okay let me... sorry thank you um I was just going to ask, is is it true that when you go to uh, study in Hausa, you come back a different person? And what, to what degree is that true? Did you find that you were alienated from people? <sighs> mm, I think from a lot of my non-Muslim friends that I had initially from, let's say, from grade school. Sorry, I'm trying to figure out. How to, I'm trying to turn off my the. No uh, so for. A lot of my friends, yeah, that was the case. My non-Muslim friends that I had from when I was younger, mm-hmm. that was def- I think that was definitely the case. They, you know, we slowly, as I started even to become more religious, not just necessarily Hausa, as I started to become more religious, mm-hmm. they, you know, the, the things I wanted to discuss, the things I wanted to talk about, although we used to get into political discussions, but, you know, my, my worldview, my outlook on life started to change. There's certain things that they wanted to do that I didn't want to do anymore, places they wanted to go, I don't want to go anymore. So we just kind of fell out naturally like that. And I think that's what happens mm-hmm. once you change your ideology on stuff, then naturally your, your, your friends group and your, lo- your, your clique has to change. So that yeah. kind of happened. But even with some of my Muslim friends who I knew growing up, once I started to be, be interested more in Islam and, and they really weren't, then we started, again, not having much in common to talk about. I mean, yeah, we still had, let's say, common things to talk about as far as, let's say, maybe mu- music or movies or comic books or video games and things like that. But even that, like, I couldn't always do that stuff. And because I had this whole other passion that was growing in me, we started to kind of just like lose connection and lose touch there. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, other individuals that I necessarily didn't really care about before, and then I realized, okay, you know, these guys, yeah, we're on the same page as far as, let's say, uh, music that we like, movies, comic books, video games. And we can also discuss these philosophical, religious, political questions. I said, it makes much more sense for me now to hang out with them. So, I mean, they have this, you know, they, this cliche stuff they always say is God opens these doors. And yeah, I think it literally did happen for me. Mm-hmm. And, and even now when I go back to communities and discuss things with whether it's, it's people that I'm meeting now, or even some of the family members that, you know, I didn't really disconnect from. But now yeah. even them seeing me as somebody who was, let's say, irreligious before, who didn't really care. And then all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, but generally over time switch. So they were kind of interested, like, you know, how the heck did that happen? How did you go from the hustle that we knew to the hustle that is in front of us now? And, you know, so they, they, a lot of people, I think, get interested in how that kind of change can happen. Because I think it's like deep down in most people, they want, they know that being religious, generally speaking, might be a good thing. But to make that jump from where they are right now to being more religious is a very difficult thing to do, right? Especially if you don't have people around you that have shown you how to do that. And when a person comes and actually does that, Again, I'm not saying I'm some like great role model or anything, but I just happened to live the experience. And those who really, really knew who I was back in the day and all the kind of nonsense and, and stuff that I get into were really, really shocked like how I could flip 180 like that. So they're really curious that, you know, how could somebody go from all this kind of nonsense and crap they used to get in back in the day and now they're getting into all this stuff now? Like, how did you make that switch? So I think that yeah. curiosity really kind of uh, made them hold on to the connection, I think. What skills do you need? in order to be a speaker or, um, you know, decide to study in Jose or anything that has to do with that realm? So I think one misconception people have is that you can 
you only go to the Hawza so you can come back and become a, a speaker, mubalir, scholar, sheikh, all that stuff. And that's not necessarily the case first. So there are many people who go to the Hawza and from the beginning they say, they say to themselves and they decide that they don't ever want to go back to a community. They don't want to ever speak on a member or a pulpit or on a podium or a table or anything. They just want to go learn Islam as it should be understood, like in its depths and know it for themselves, maybe teach it back to their families, maybe their close friends and things like that. And that's it. They don't want to become public figures. Maybe they might want to get involved in research, maybe writing, blogging. So there's many different opportunities and different ways you can go. But regardless, for all of those, whether you want to be a speaker, writer, researcher, anything, what I think is very, very important for anybody going into this is that they definitely need to have an open mind and be able to kind of destroy some of their internal idols that they might have, right? Because we've all been raised with a certain understanding of Islam, right? That we've heard from when we were kids or even let's say people who convert or revert to Islam, they may have been given a certain version from when they first converted or reverted. So a lot of that stuff may be examined and, ex and explored in depth when they get to the Hawza. So you have to be able to kind of, like they say, break those idols of religion that we might have when you go there. You know, you might have heard of a certain story about history or a certain hadith. And then you, when you get there, you might learn that, hey, maybe some scholars actually don't think it's authentic or they might have a different interpretation about it. Or maybe that there's one hadith that's famous and there's like 99 to 100 different interpretations out there. And all these are seen as, you know, very reputable, authentic. And a person has to kind of find themselves over there. So a lot of soul searching does happen there too. You don't have to necessarily be this perfect spiritual being and then go over there. I think a lot of people kind of find themselves once once they get there. As long as you keep that in mind, I think it's a good place for a person to go and re-examine themselves, you know, try to purify themselves, connect back to God, and they can find a good way to do that over there. Whether it's based on the research that they do, whether it's based on scholars and teachers that they find there, or maybe even connecting with a, another group of students that are like-minded over there, and they kind of push in that mm -hmm. direction. If you want to be a speaker, then yeah, I think there's a whole bunch of other factors that have to be considered. Uh, which, and if you want to explore that specifically, I guess we can go into that. But you know, that's a whole separate issue, I think. Yeah. Uh, what's the goal of the Hausa? That I think would also depend on who you ask. Mm -hmm. A lot of people think that the Hausa is actually for everybody. If the goal is to to get as close to God as possible, and the Hausa can provide the best way of showing you how to get close to God. Then some people and some scholars argue that, yeah, everybody should go to Hawza. Others say, look, no, Hawza is not for everybody. Traditionally, the Hawza is only for people who want to learn how to be masters or mujtahideen and experts in fiqh and usul, meaning how to derive law from the Quran and hadith and these different legal principles and legal theories. Mm -hmm. That's traditionally how the Hawza has been. Other people say, no, there's other different things you can explore, meaning you can go, you can become an expert in philosophy or mysticism, Arafan, I'll say Quranic studies, Hadith studies, all these different other types of subjects. So that's another thing you can go into. And for others, it's that, no, maybe they just want to be reacquainted or go a bit more in depth in certain things that they've heard about Islam. And that's it. They don't want to become a, a mujtahid or an ayatollah in these kind of things. They don't want to give their own opinions. They just want to have enough that it's a bit more than the, what they've heard in let's say from when they were growing up so i think a good analogy and they even have this kind of breakdown now in the house right is if somebody gets a bachelor's in a certain degree right so if i have a bachelor's in political science that means i know just a little bit more than somebody who just has general knowledge about political science maybe right depending on what i focus on now if i go in, into a master's now i understand a bit more in depth how some of these ideas are researched and how the conclusions are reached 
And once I go for a PhD, then I should be able to develop and create my own opinion on the matter. So that's, those same kind of stages are, are available in the house as well. You can go and, I mean, I was even talking to somebody uh, before, and they said they just want to learn a little bit of Farsi or a little bit of Arabic, just so they can look at the books themselves that, you know, because we don't have a lot of material available in English, that's enough for them. And then they come back home and then they start doing research themselves. Some people even only want to go there for, let's say, six months to a year or two, just learn language and come back. And that might, might be enough for them as well. Yeah. Okay. Um, so how do you, uh, I think one question that is interesting to bring up, how does someone apply? Is it like normal colleges, universities? Is there uh, a normal application process? So one of the, let's say, issues of the houses being in, let's say, I don't want to call them third world countries, but in places like Iraq or Iran or any other mm -hmm. country that you go to study is let's say the bureaucracy and logistical systems are not as strong or um, they're not as good as they are over here, right in the West. Mm -hmm. So sometimes, even if, I mean, like for in Iran, for example, for Jamal al-Mustafa, right, al-Mustafa University, they have, system, you, can, you can apply online, you can get yourself admitted online. Whether that thing actually reaches something or whether there, uh, an error code will be thrown when you try to submit, it's, it's highly likely. So usually what people do is they find somebody they know, like they speak to a scholar or a visiting speaker that comes or a, a friend that they might have that's already studying there. And they tell them, hey, can you just submit an application on my behalf? Like, so the person will send them, a, uh, let's say, a PDF that they filled out. The student mm -hmm. over there will fill it out, will print it out. And they'll give it to the in-person in the admissions office and they'll follow up. Other people, what they do is, they actually set up, they come for Ziyara, just so they, they can see all the different schools, get a feeling of what goes on there, meet different students and teachers. And then while they're there, they go and fill out the admissions forms. And they see that mm -hmm. sometimes it can get done very quickly if they push enough. And even if it gets done later, they say, look, we'll send the visa for you to come back later on. Or you just come back at this time and everything will be ready for you. Mm -hmm. so usually it's better to come in person, have somebody in person do everything. Okay. Now, I'm only familiar with the system in Iran, in Qom specifically. I don't necessarily know how it works in Najaf or in anywhere else in, in Iraq. Did you, uh, when you came back from uh, Hauza and came back to this Western society that we live in, did you see that there was a lack of speakers or that there was more? So as far as just generally, as if we use the word speaker, like people who actually go- Or Western raised speakers. Even so, even that, mm -hmm. I think we have a lot of Western raised speakers or Western born and raised, whichever way. And yeah, there are people who are <clears throat> coming to our communities and our centers and Masajid and Husseinias and Mambargas, all that. And they're speaking on behalf of Islam. Now, whether they, I feel personally, like humbly, whether I feel like they're actually addressing the issues properly, whether they're, even if they know what the issues are, whether they're tackling those issues in an appropriate manner, I think that's a separate discussion. I think now, within recent years, we've definitely seen a increase of a lot of people who are, you know, either coming back and forth from the houses overseas, or whether they're within North America or even Europe, who are coming back and forth and speaking. So there's a lot of those available. I mean, there's still not enough, I think, to go around the centers, but there's a lot of people who are willing to speak. Again, but I don't know necessarily if they're, I don't want to use the word qualified in a completely negative sense, but in a sense that I don't know if they are really handling the issues as, as they need to be handled right now in communities. Mm -hmm. uh, what's something that you wish someone would have told you before you began this journey? 
I think what I mentioned before, if, if somebody had, you know, told me that there, you need to really kind of toss out everything before you come to the Hamza, right? You really should make sure all your preconceived notions, presumptions, assumptions, biases, toss all of that down the drain because everything's up for grabs when you go to the Hamza. Everything is questionable. We can discuss and debate anything there. And mm-hmm. even though that's something that I think should also be implemented in our communities back home, but the Hamza is supposed to be known for that, right? We debate constantly back and forth, of different, going back and forth between different scholars' opinions. And I don't know. I mean, I had a general understanding, but I didn't know that it would, every single topic, every single idea was debated and discussed so in depth. And I mean, I always had that love for knowledge and I wanted to you know, search for truth, but I really had no idea that it actually could go that deep. And I think if I had that information beforehand, it would have maybe given me a bit of a, a greater push to go and maybe would have set my mind up a bit more. I don't want to say put me at ease, but it could have, I think, prepared me a little bit more. And some of the difficulties that do exist when you come over there, because I think people do expect a utopia too, and it's not a utopia, no matter where you go. There are definitely issues that a person will face, whether politically, socially, economically, educationally, and myself too. I'm a big proponent of having a proper educational system. And there are some issues over there because us coming from the West, dealing with Eastern systems, it it can be very tough for a lot of people. And for me, it's still, it is very tough. And I have to work a little extra hard on my own time to make up for my own, let's say, issues. So that's something that I wish I understood beforehand. What was the hardest part or hardest thing that you faced? I think I was, I, I really was in a rush to get to certain things. And the program there is very, very slow. It's designed for, I think, younger kids, uh, people who, let's say, maybe haven't been experienced in education so, you know, myself, I had my bachelor's, so I was already, to some degree, educationally disciplined, right? I know how to take notes. I know how to study for exams. I, I know all those things, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of the systems there are not designed for that. It's, it's really designed to babysit to some de- degree. It's really designed for younger kids. So a lot of the administrators and teachers over there, I'm younger. I'm sorry, I'm older than them. So sometimes the way they would talk to me, I'd be kind of caught off guard. I'm like, listen, I've, I've, I've lived more years on the earth than you. Like, I've had more experience <laughs> in education and office administration that you have. So it'd be very tough for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I tried to humble myself and understand what they were saying. And a lot of them just didn't understand, right? They, they were Islamically knowledgeable, but a lot of them couldn't deliver it properly. They couldn't answer my questions. So I became frustrated very easily. And one thing that really helped me was when I realized that I, was, I had to actually do, do a lot of stuff on my own. So people think that they have to go and just sit in classes and everything will be solved. And a lot of scholars, they advise me that, look, Yes, the Hausa will offer you a lot of things, but it's opportunities that you can find there of doing your own private research, which is very necessary. And once I learned how to do that and where to go and yeah. find private teachers, I think that was the, the kind of best thing for me. And it was difficult because I wasn't, it was tough for me to be self-motivating in that regard, you know, very lazy attention focus issue. But I kind of had to improve that in that regard. And so it was a positive and negative thing, I think, in that regard. Mm-hmm. What's been the most valuable thing you uh, gained? throughout definitely relationship my relationship with with specific and certain teachers that i found mm-hmm. uh, because definitely there's there's some who have very good akhlaq but let's say maybe their knowledge about the subject wasn't very strong and then maybe there were some teachers who their knowledge is a lot was great they're really knowledgeable but their akhlaq wasn't the best maybe it's not that they were rude or mean but it's you know didn't weren't really great role models and they couldn't explain things. But I was able to find certain teachers, especially private teachers, who were 
very knowledgeable. They were very objective. They would always listen to, even if I had a stupid response to what they're saying, they would listen to it with kindness, with an open mind. They would say, okay, let's explore that a bit more, right? They would go back and forth with me. They would encourage me to research more. They would encourage me to debate and discuss and go back and forth. Mm -hmm. uh, they opened my mind to so many different issues that I never even thought of exploring. So, and then of course, they would be great to get advice from, about practical advice. Uh, yeah. And they, and when they had akhlaq as well, then they would show me a lot of things that I wouldn't even think of as far as how to act in communities or things that were deficiencies or weaknesses on my part that I never really thought of. And, you know, seeing examples of the Ahlul Bayt like that, like a true, true scholar and the truest sense of the word, like mm -hmm. it, it's a very, it's a rare thing. But when you, when I was able to find teachers like that, it really changed a lot of what I understood about Islam and really pushed me uh, even in subjects that I wasn't interested in before because I'm much more interested in what they call the intellectual subjects like epistemology, logic, theology, philosophy, mysticism, irfan, um, spiritual psychology, parenting, uh, education, things like that. So traditionally like fiqh, usul, Quran, hadith, I, I, I know I, I studied them but I wasn't super interested but even now some of my teachers because they were so strong in the subject and they were so good at teaching it. They pushed me more, uh, pushed me to be more interested in those. So that was, that was really nice. That's amazing. Um, unfortunately we're coming to the end of our show, but before we come, we end it off. Um, Said Hassan Ali, can you tell us what your message for our youth is today? Message for youth. You know, I think it's really tough to give this like overall, like, message with like a broad stroke right because i think mm -hmm. a lot of youth and i still consider myself a youth to some degree right like all my youthful things I, I don't know if i've necessarily abandoned like i still watch movies and tv shows i'm still into comic books you know i saw endgame three times already and i've still right. been able to find a way to connect my experiences and the way that i live as a quote-unquote normal youth or normal kid i guess with my religious experiences right so uh, like i mentioned before like matrix and inception and all this stuff that i watch I was able to, to see these movies in a different light. Or now when I think about Superman, Batman, or Avengers, or things like that, I see all these things in a different light. So I, I, have, I can give deeper meaning to things that I didn't really, I kind of saw superficially before. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of the problems that youth face is, I know that there's always this cliche idea of youth issues and youth are facing these problems. And that's definitely the case. But, and I think youth sometimes get disenfranchised and upset, like nobody's actually addressing these things properly. And mm -hmm. the, I think there are ways to address them. And I think, I would hope that they would just be a bit patient, that there are people out there who are working on properly trying to address these things. And hopefully they can reach out to people that they feel like can address these things and, and try to solve these issues. Because, you know, we're really living in a time where a lot of things are confusing. We're facing these identity, an identity crisis, right? Of being, having this Muslim identity and also this Western American, European or Canadian identity. And it's yeah. tough to kind of balance the two or even understand should we, how do we balance these ideas? What do we give priority to one? And there are answers out there. It's going to take a lot more effort than one little Q&A or one you know, random discussion or a Google search. So if people are really interested in finding the truth and actually caring about their, you know, the world here and the next world, then I think they're going to have to spend a bit more time. But I don't want them to be hopeless. I think be hopeful. And I think there are people out there who are putting in the effort and doing work so that this kind of information will be provided to them and for all of us, inshallah. Inshallah. Thank you so much, Sayyid, for giving us your time today and for uh, just really discussing and telling us exactly what, how's it is the experience there and 
um, your life experience as well. Oh, well. My pleasure. Thank you so much. We hold this talk show weekly. If you or anyone you know wants to come and speak on the show, you can just reach out to us through our email or through our Facebook page. Um, and you were just listening to the Umentor talk show. If you missed this or future shows, you can always hear the replay on the Umentor website under prior talk shows. If you want to reach out to, to today's speaker or any of the speakers from our previous shows, uh, you can just visit our online platform at emojioutreach.org slash unleash the future slash groups. And you can also visit the Umentor website and hit the link for online platform. Be sure to tune in next Saturday at 3 p.m. for another speaker and more stories. Thank you for listening in today.